So Exodus 21, verse 1, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. Since he has broken faith with her, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do those, these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. We thank the Lord for his holy and inerrant word. Well, we, we all do, we all do it. Uh, you've only known someone for like a few, five minutes, and already you've formed an opinion. You only have a casual acquaintance, but you've already decided that they cannot be trusted. Uh, we take a few preliminary glances, we put two and two together, we pass summary judgment, and then sadly, as often as not, come to, the, to realize that as we get to know them better, that we have been quite wrong. And two and two do not in fact make six. And with a more than a little guilt, we have to admit that the premature conclusions to which we earlier jumped, based on what somebody else told us about someone, or based on the most superficial glance of a person's character, were altogether wrong and misplaced. And we're left to hope that our early judgmentalism has not ruined our relationship with them permanently. I don't know whether you've ever experienced that yourself or had that happened to you. And if I may say so, the very worst victim of that kind of judgmentalism is God himself. Especially at the hands of those who just have a purely superficial knowledge of the Bible. They light on passages like this one. And suddenly they get really uptight. And that glimmer of zeal blazes in life in their eyes. God condones slavery. They cry. With the wild joy of somebody who's found God out. With the wild joy of someone who's found at last a valid excuse for their secret sin an oppressor of minorities, an abuser of the weak, who would worship a monster like this? I have no need of a God like this. You probably read that all over the internet just on this passage alone. And so the objection goes, but not so fast. Two and two do not make six. There is more here than meets the eye. 
So if you will allow me, as we've moved our way through the book of Exodus, this is where we find ourselves, and we have to rightly deal with a passage. And um, if you're like me, I mean, you know, I, there was a moment when I thought, well, maybe I should break for Christmas now. And uh, <laughs> then, <laughs> oh, did I miss that one out? No, no. Um, we come to texts like this, and they often leave us perplexed and uh, scratching our heads. So rather than skip it, I want us to deal with it and to see what we make of this before God in all honesty, because we know that every word is God-breathed. So if you allow me for the next few minutes, I want to see how this admittedly difficult passage, far from exposing the primitive, monstrous brutality of an ancient tribal deity, I believe, in fact, displays the realism, the compassion, and the saving plan of God for sinners like me and sinners like you. So first of all, the realism of God. Exodus 21, 1-11 is our text. And the place to start, I think, is by facing a fundamental question about our passage. Why would a good God legislate for slavery in the national life of his people, Israel? Surely slavery is evil. So does that make God pro-slavery? That is a good question. Let me just try a little thought experiment on you. It may not work. I hope it will by way of illustration. Imagine a scenario. Imagine that you lived in a country where there were no restrictions at all on the use and sale of narcotics or narcotic drugs. And the drug trade is legal and free and deadly. And the drug trade kills thousands. It spreads HIV AIDS at an epidemic level as desperate junkies share dirty needles, trapping an entire generation in the terrible prison of narcotic addiction. Now imagine that you've been elected to a government office in such a country. Of course it is your priority and your goal to see the wicked cancer on the life of your society, the drug trade ended forever. But you are a lone voice, and so instead of immediately introducing a bill to abolish the drug trade, which you know will fail, you introduce a bill instead that limits access to certain drugs, to set a minimum age at which someone may legally purchase such drugs. You seek to implement punitive measures to make the production and the marketing of narcotics less and less attractive. And so on, year after year, you seek to reduce it, to destroy it, to undermine it, until at last it is gone. Now, we've seen something similar with cigarettes, I, I, I guess, in, in our country. You know, th th it used to be uh, marketed as an attractive thing, and now it's marketed as a certain kind of death. But now, to go back to the scenario, have you betrayed your convictions that the drug trade is evil because you sought to introduce a bill to minimize, restrict, and limit it rather than a bill to abolish it? Do you get, do you, do you get what I'm saying? You're not condoning it. You're working to restrict the wickedness all around you. That is what you're doing. You're working to curtail the vice and to establish new and better norms 
always striving to move the bar inch by inch toward the goal of the final eradication of the problem. And I think that is what we have in the regulations before us addressing slavery in Israel in Exodus 21, 1-11. to But consider the context as for slavery for a moment. Con- just consider the context into which these laws were first spoken. The people of Israel have only themselves just come out from under crushing slavery in Egypt. Now, as far as we know, there was no written code governing life in Egypt. The word of Pharaoh was law, and the word of Pharaoh was capricious. He changed his mind in dangerous and volatile directions. And as the people of Israel discovered to their great cost, it was a season of brutal, crushing, agonizing, unrelenting bondage the children of Israel had to endure in Egypt. Just remember the context. There was terrible slavery in Egypt. There were other cultures older than Israel, cultures like Mesopotamia, that provided written bodies of law somewhat similar to the law of Moses that we're reading in the book of Exodus. There, there, are, there are codes that you can read today, the code of Hammurabi or the lords of Eshiana are just two. And they have fascinating, they have a different character to the law of God given to his people Israel. They have little emphasis for ethical living, little concern for spiritual things. Their valuation of human life was inferior. Life was cheap. This was a brutal, difficult season and time and place in the history of the world. There was slavery, as we've known, in Egypt. There was slavery, slavery elsewhere. But over against the despotic tyranny of Pharaoh or the cruel rules of ancient Babylon, the law that God gave his people worked to restrain and limit the brutality of life in the ancient Near East. So look at the text with me and notice, importantly, there is no absolute slavery in Israel. You see that in verse 2, slaves are to be freed every seven years. You look for a moment at verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. There is zero tolerance for the practice of man-stealing, kidnapping people, and forcibly subjecting them to lifelong slavery. There's zero tolerance for that in our, in, in our verse, in, in our scripture. This is the form of slavery with which we are most familiar. Forcible abduction in forced bondage. The slave trade is what we think of, isn't it? When there were slave ships that went to Africa and abducted African men, women and children and they were forced to live as subhumans, as property. The Bible has no tolerance for that. There is no justification for the slave trade at all in the Bible. The form of slavery that we're dealing with, because it refers to it as those words, is very different. It is different to Egyptian slavery. It is different to slavery in Mesopotamia. And it is different to antebellum American slavery, the slave trade across the Atlantic. This slavery we're, we're, we're talking about in Exodus 21 is a voluntary servitude driven by economic circumstance. 
and a great deal of the regulations that we're dealing with in these 11 verses that seem so objectionable to us in 2019 at first glance cease to be quite so offensive when we understand the way that dynamic economic destitution affected life in the ancient world for men and women. There is no social security there. There is no NHS. There, there isn't any, you know, there is no safety net. There is no possibility of a loan. There's no centralized provision for the poor and the destitute. This is the practice. This was the way to provide for yourself or your family in the situation of a necessity of need. So, <laughs> I think sometimes that we can be quite arrogant if we look at this and say, oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Because it was how they survived. It was how they survived. A person would enter into slavery not to shatter hope, but to secure a livelihood in the face of destitution and to a cling to a shred of hope when all other options were gone. I just warn against the danger of 2019 sitting in judgment of a complete culture which was very different to our own. Very, very different. So the first thing we un need to understand is that God is limiting, to go back to our scenario, God is regulating, God is minimizing the excess and redirecting the sinful hearts of human beings who even as they emerged themselves from the worst excesses of Egyptian slavery were still prone to dehumanize and dominate one another. God is speaking into that. Because you would have thought that Israel, after, after the journey, after the Egyptian experience, you would have thought that Israel, of all the peoples in the world, would have learned the lesson. You would have thought that Israel would not have needed laws to tell them not to treat people like cattle, to be bought and sold without rights and without hope. Because surely they knew what it was like. They'd lived years under the lash, literally the lash, of Egyptian taskmasters. Remember Exodus 1 and 2? But you see, God knows our hearts, and God knows. God knows that the abused easily become abusers. And God knows that the hated easily hate in return. That's why in the New Testament, you know, the parable of Matthew 18, the debtor, in Jesus' parable, many times we who have been forgiven are slow to forgive in turn. You remember the parable of the unforgiving debtor, the, the unforgiving servant. The king is settling his accounts and he discovers that one of his servants owe him 10,000 talents. The servant is unable to pay, so the king orders him and his whole family to be sold as slaves to repay the debt. The man pleads for mercy, the king shows mercy, forgives the man the debt. The man has been forgiven 10,000. He leaves the king's audience chamber, he finds another servant who owes him 100 denarii, and he throttles him. It is a disturbing story. 
distasteful. <laughs> but it's distasteful not because of just the contents, but, but the way it exposes our hearts. We find ourselves portrayed in it more often than we care to admit. Forgiven though we may be, we're still awfully prone to fail to forgive. Having received mercy, we do not show mercy. So Israel is coming out of slavery. Israel has been set free by the grace of God. And yet even they need to be told that left to themselves, their wicked hearts would abuse and commodify other people unless constrained and curtailed and limited by the law of God. So our first point is that God is very real. God is a realist about our hearts and about the wickedness of our world. And he legislates to restrain the worst excesses of sin. He gives us his law to rein us in, constrain our wickedness. So first of all, the realism of God. Secondly, the compassion of God. Now in the verses we read, I hope that may sound like a bit of a stretch to you. We're talking about slavery and you're trying to do jiggery-pokery up there, James, to try and um, talk about slavery after all. Compassion? What kind of compassion puts people into slavery? But look at what God tells his people in the passage. As we saw in verse 2, there is provision for freedom after six years' service. The idea was it would be long enough to repay a debt or to store up some assets in order to start over. Oh, but look at verses 3 and 4, the argument says. People were to leave slavery in the same marital status with which they entered it. But if you were married while you were a slave, a man could be set free but not his wife or child. There we go again. Typical of the Bible. The Bible's always putting women down. How is that compassionate? Again, do not judge without understanding the context. It was dire economic context that would lead someone to do this in the first place. It was their only way out. It was their only way out. They had no options left. And to be an impoverished woman at this time in this place was to be at risk you would be in an extremely precarious and vulnerable social position. Upon his release, a man whose circumstances were so dire that they demanded his servitude in the first place needed therefore to be able to ensure that his wife or his children would be secure so he could protect them and provide for them and they would be spared the predations of the age. So she would have to, rem it was safer to remain. I, d I just realized what I said. I, no, uh, I wasn't talking about Brexit, I promise. Um, she, would, she would have to remain and be safer remaining a slave to a wealthy master until her husband had sufficient funds to buy her manumission, which is her release. So that first glance, look, well, what on earth is this talking about? It's providing for the woman because the woman would have been safer where she was, rather than being impoverished out there. Leviticus 25, verse 47, make provision for people to buy others out of bondage. So it was safer that she stayed until she could be bought. It was an effective way. The man is actually, and I mean this from the context of the time, the man is providing for his wife and caring for her. 
if he couldn't afford to buy their freedom and couldn't, he couldn't protect them. He couldn't protect those he was charged to protect. He had another option, of course. He could, verse 5 and 6, indenture himself permanently. I love my master and my wife and my children. I will not go out free. And he'll be brought before God, and presumably that is a reference to a form of oath taken between the master and the servant in the presence of God. And at the threshold, this is a lovely piece, isn't it? His ear would be pierced by a blade into the wood of the doorpost. He was temporarily fixed to the entry of the home, his blood driven into the fabric of the dwelling by the blade that pierced his ear. It's a graphic, symbolic way to say this person is now bound to the house forever, never to leave. But driven by his love for his master and his family, he has committed himself to provide for them. So, God is putting these regulations before his people, Israel, that would make sure that the weakest and the most marginal and the poorest have a mechanism for life. So it is about the compassion of God. God preserving the dignity of human life. And the same goes for the even more difficult material of verses 7 to 11. Once again, remember, this is a destitute family. And in those days, in those circumstances, very often a father's only hope for a better life for his daughter might be that a wealthy man would marry her and be able to provide and care for her. So the form of slavery dealt with in verses 7 to 11 is a, an arranged marriage, either to the master himself or to his son. And if for some reason, verse 8, the arrangement looked like a poor one, the woman should be set free. But notice carefully, she may not be sold off to foreigners in order to make a profit from her. She is not property to be disposed of as the master wills. She is to be set free because the man has broken faith with her. He has betrayed her. She has marital rights that have not been met. He has failed to provide and protect her as her husband. And if the woman is purchased for the master's son, she is to be treated not like some kind of plaything, but with the dignity and position of the master's own daughter. And then verse 9 if other wives enter the home, and again, this is the wickedness of the culture at the time, God is trying to limit and constrain it, not advocate it or promote it. Polygamy, polygamy took place all over the ancient Near East. And should that happen here, he wants to make sure the first wife is not neglected or disenfranchised. This is not adv advocacy or promotion. This is con constraint and limiting. And if the master at any point fails, then she is immediately to be released without any manumission price. But notice the concern that for the welfare of the woman, for her rights to be secured, her future to be provided for. What at first glance may seem like a brutal abuse of power, a case of the callous manipulation of women who continue so often to be wickedly preyed upon in our culture and time, in the context of this time and place, is to be seen, in fact, as a provision. It's a provision designed to honor the woman with rights. No one else and nowhere else have provided to her. 
and to protect her from the danger she would otherwise have been exposed to if she tried to live on her own. So I hope you're beginning to see that strange though it may appear to us, this is a text that speaks about the compassionate care of God for the poor and for the weak and the marginal and the most vulnerable in Israelite society. This is about the dignity of human life, not the abuse of it. This is God. Psalm 94 verse 6. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. Psalm 113 verse 7. He, that's God, raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Psalm 146 verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And here, though we may need to strain our spiritual sight a little to see it, here is a dim reflection of the compassion of God climatically revealed in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, in whose earthly ministry, in response to the inquiries of John the Baptist, you'll remember, he said, the blind receive their sight because of him. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. The compassion of God seen climatically in Jesus Christ. This is another echo of something we will see revealed when Jesus dealt with that poor woman. Matthew 25, verse 34. No one could help her. No one wanted to touch her. She was considered outcast and unclean. At the uttermost extremity of need, she tried doctor after doctor and no one could heal her. It only made her worse and worse. But as Jesus passed by, she reached out that trembling, desperate hand. She just brushed the hem of his garment and by faith took hold of the compassionate heart of God toward her who makes her whole and cares for her. Some attempted to think that God is not interested in mundane things like sore bodies or troubled marriages or wayward children. He's only, the, you know, the, I, I say that that's a lie and it goes like this. He's only interested in people who make the cut, who look the part, who have no troubles like this. None of the grit or grim challenge of the real world with which we deal every day. God is interested in abstractions and ideas and souls but not with real problems. I just say, read the passage again. Read the passage again. The God with whom we have to do is a God who operates in the grit and the grim realities of the real world. He is a God of all compassion, the Father of mercies, and he gets it. He cares for his people in the harsh realities of the real world. He is the Father to the fatherless. He does raise the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Never think that God is careless of your hurts and your obvious needs. Nor should you think that his people, the church, should never be troubled with so mundane a problem as your daily bread. Our text is a body of instruction given to the church, given to God's ancient people about how they should care for one another when all other recourse has gone and you are at an extremity of need. The church is to carry one another's burdens. You do not need to suffer alone. 
You can turn to the compassionate heart of God that is turned towards you, that beats for you in Jesus Christ, and you can turn to his people. And you will strive to bear, they will strive to bear their burdens with you and walk with you in the worst and darkest of times. So our passage is full of the realism of God. I believe the compassion of God is here. And finally, even the saving plan of God for sinners is here. At several points along the way, God builds into these regulations, even for slavery, reminders of his saving design. He's so committed to making the gospel pattern clear that he weaves it into the details of the civil code of the national life of his ancient people, sometimes in unexpected ways and unexpected places. If you look again at verse 2, slaves are to be released every seventh year. The first of an entire series of laws in Israel's national life designed to reflect on, amplify, and apply the Sabbath the Sabbath principle from the fourth commandment. The Sabbath principle that one day in seven is to be the day of rest and anticipation. The day of enacted promise for God's people. That final rest is coming. Rest from sin and misery is coming. Relief is on its way. And the new heavens and the new earth will one day dawn. And here on the seventh year is the Sabbath year for a slave when they are set entirely free. God sets captives free and gives them rest. So even here we see an admirable summary of the Christian gospel. God sets the captives free and gives them rest and he does it by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me, all ye who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from sin and guilt. Rest from that, those strivings, that treadmill of self-salvation. Rest from the treadmill of dead works. But rest on grace. The rest of assurance and confident hope. Jesus finished the work the Father gave him to do. And because it is finished, we can rest on him and find rest in him as he sets us free. Or look again at that strange ritual that took place at the threshold of the door in verses 5 and 6. As the slave's ear is pierced with an awl as he swears himself to remain in the master's house for life. In Psalm 40 verse 6, commentators suggest there is another reference to the same ritual. Only now it is applied not to a slave and a master in an Israelite home. Now it is applied to a believer and is God. The psalmist says in Psalm 40, verse 6, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. And literally that means you have pierced my ear. So the psalmist is saying, like the slave who says, I will not leave my master's house. I love my master and my family. I'm going to serve gladly. So his ear is pierced. And he says, this is how I am in my relationship to God. I give my whole life to his service. In Hebrews 10, verse 7, those words we are told apply supremely, not to the psalmist, not to you, not to me, but to the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one 
who is the servant of his father, whose shed blood signals his perpetual obedience in the father's house. He is our substitute. He is the true servant of God, obedient unto death. That sets us free. The great concern of the Bible, the burden of the heart of God, is to point us to the Lord Jesus. And I hope we can see something of how committed God is to that concern. Even in our difficult passage, as he weaves the gospel patterns into as difficult a piece of scripture as a constraining law governing slavery in Israel. Everywhere in the Bible, there are adorations of gospel truth, pointers to Jesus. So wherever you turn, by the grace of God, by the design of God, Christ steps forth from every page to say to you, come to me and I will set you free. Come to me and I will give you rest. The compassionate heart of God beats for sinners like you and me. And we take hold of it by taking hold of Christ. And that is the call of Christ to each one of us. It is a deep bondage from which only Jesus can give us release. Maybe you live under its tyranny Every day your conscience stings and smites and you long for freedom. Freedom is found only in Jesus Christ who pleads with you to come to him and he will give you rest. So my prayer is that the Lord would help you to hear even in our obscure text to see the invitation and summons of Jesus Christ who holds out to you deliverance from the bondage of sin and may he help us to answer and come to him. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we thank you for your compassionate heart that is concerned about the weakest and the least and the most vulnerable and the most fragile. But we thank you for the way that your compassionate heart is fully disclosed to us in the Lord Jesus. He lived the perfect life. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that I deserve to die and he rose again to give us new life. I grant that everyone here this afternoon would run to him, would bow before him, would receive from his nail-pierced nail hands the freedom and the rest that only Jesus can give. How we long for rest. I thank you we can find it in Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen.